Please, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Had a pretty good week of study coming into this morning, fairly confident with this sermon. And uh, one of my heroes, one of my modern-day heroes, is Pastor John MacArthur at Grace Community Church out in California. And at his Shepherds Conference, he's been having that conference every year now for decades. It was just over this weekend. And I read online where he spoke at the conference, and one of the things he said was this, do not announce your eschatology until you've mastered the book of Zechariah. And I had two questions, or not two questions. I had number one question, Dr. MacArthur, have you mastered the book of Zechariah? Right? That would be one question. And uh, not another question, but then another thought. I certainly haven't mastered the book of Zechariah. And so what am I doing taking us through the book of Revelation? Well, I hope you all will still hang with me, even though I profess I have not mastered the book of Zechariah, nor the book of Revelation. But I have enjoyed studying it, and I hope it's been a blessing for you and a means to our perseverance in faith in Jesus Christ. Earlier this week on Monday, I know it can sometimes be a little late for Mark, our worship leader, but I, I reached out to him and I said, hey, I got, a, I got a song I'd love for us to sing at the end this morning. And he moved some things around and we're going to sing, as you probably saw in the worship guide, before the throne of God above. It's got a stanza in there that really dovetails with some of what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm glad that Mark chose to do that for us. As I continued to study this week, I hit Thursday, and I thought, I got a better song. But it was Thursday, and I didn't dare, right? So when we come to the end of my sermon, I'm going to talk to you about that song, but then we're going to sing the other song, and I trust it's going to be great. One of the stanzas in Before the Throne of God Above goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Does ever do that to you? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do you do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. One of the assumptions of that song is the grim reality of a great enemy called Satan, along with his demonic minions. We live in a very materialistic world, right? Naturalistic world. We talked about this several weeks ago where we live in a culture that says the only thing that is real is that which we can see and smell and taste and hear and touch. The material world 
Matter is all that exists. But of course, the Bible paints a completely different picture about reality. That beyond the material world, there is a spiritual world as well. God, who spoke all things into existence by His great power. The angelic realm. And also in the providence of God, one of those angels apparently sinning, Satan, and leading with him a host of angels in rebellion, demons. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record Jesus being tempted by Satan, casting out demons, speaking often about the devil. The book of Acts follows in chapter 5, Peter says to Ananias that Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Later in the book of Acts, we see Paul casting out demons. Of course, in the letters of Paul, he speaks often of the unseen spirit world and speaks of the schemes of the devil. The book of Hebrews speaks of the one who has the power of death, quote, that is, the devil. James tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Peter tells us that our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. John reminds us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jude tells us of angels who did not keep their proper abode and of the archangel Michael in a dispute with the devil. And of course, the book of Revelation, we will see here the dragon, the serpent of old, Satan, the devil. Every author in the New Testament not to mention all of the references to the unseen spirit world in the Old Testament, but every single author in the New Testament, their worldview is not merely all that we can see is all that is. No, there's an entire unseen spirit world alive and We're going to see some of that this morning in Revelation 12. I think it's good for us to remember. It seems to me that John, the Lord, through John, wants us to remember it, to take note of it, and even by faith in Christ, strive against it. So let's jump in and see how we do. In chapter 12, I think we're going to see three different scenes here. As I sum up this first one, Verses 1 to 6, God nourishes his, his people in their wilderness journey from the onslaught of the enemy. John says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a, a crown of 12 stars, and she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. 
Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. So there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Some of you know that I have really enjoyed Dr. Colin Nichols' book, The Great Christ Comet. We're not going to get into that other than to pique your interest again. He thinks that John is seeing or describing what the Magi possibly saw in the eastern horizon in late September and October of 6 B.C., of God in the stars telling of the birth of his son, the king of Israel, taking place at that very same time in Bethlehem of Judea. Whether Colin Nickel is correct about that or not, what John describes here is a vision then, a celestial vision of a woman giving birth to a child who is going to reign over all the nations of the earth and a dragon seeking to devour that child. But that child being taken up, caught up, and protected. Who is the woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a head, a crown of 12 stars, most believe it's a reference to the old covenant people of God, the nation of Israel, longing for their coming Messiah, longing for that one who would be born to reign and to rule. And here is a picture of that woman, the nation of Israel, then may be personified in Mary being in labor and in pain to give birth to a son. But at the same time, a dragon appears. A great, large, massive, big, red dragon. Red, probably the idea of bloodthirsty. Having seven heads and ten horns, he too is powerful and menacing. And on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. It could simply be a reference to his rage at the birth of this child. Some think maybe it's a reference to the sweeping away of a third of the angels to follow in his rebellion. But he stood before the woman like a... Like a serpent does when they are about to strike. 
He stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy God's plans for the redemption of his people. It's a story that goes as far back as Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world and everything was wonderful. Adam and Eve in his image in this garden and they are to trust him, obey him, worship him, bear children, raise up those children in the fear and trust and obedience of the Lord and probably take that garden to the ends of the earth. But of course, in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, more crafty than all the others, comes and deceives Eve and tempts Eve and Adam, who was right there with her, into sin, rebellion against God, and everything falls apart. The curse comes. But just as soon as it does, God God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent will seek to destroy the seed of the woman. But he will only bruise his heel as the seed of the woman will crush his head. And thus, since the fall, there has been enmity. There has been struggle. It played out as Cain killed his brother Abel. It played out later as Saul would try to kill David, the king of Israel. It played out in history as Herod the Great, upon hearing that the king of the Jews had been born, sought to have that baby killed and had all the babies two years and younger in Bethlehem destroyed. Satan, apparently in this sign, was eager to put to death the seed of the woman who had come, who is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's a reference to Psalm chapter 2. We don't have time, but I'm going to read it anyway. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations of the world, the kings of the world, do not want to be ruled by God, nor his Christ. How does God respond? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God's king is going to come. 
I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The New Testament authors seem to believe that that is fulfilled in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to the Father's right hand. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, how, how, how should men respond? How should the kings respond? Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. I think some translations, kiss the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Satan sought to kill this baby and to end God's plans to make things right. But of course... Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. All of the commentators that I have read say that this is a collapsing of the ministry of Jesus Christ in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, being caught up to the right hand of God from where he, which he reigns. Now, Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. You might disagree with me on this. I'm not the only one following it this way. In the coming of Jesus Christ and in, in, in the work that he accomplished, the people of God are no longer, um, oh, what's the, the word that Carson uses? The locus of the people of God is no longer simply the nation of Israel. But now that Christ has come and lived and died and rose and ascended and instituted the new covenant, the locus of the people of God is not one particular nation, but it's people from all the nations, peoples, tongues, and tribes of the world. And so many would see here in verse 6 now, the woman that fled into the wilderness is the new covenant people of God. You and me. We fled into the wilderness where we have, she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for the 1,260 days. And if you've been with us, you know I understand that to be symbolic for the period of time between the first and second coming of Jesus. What's the point? Just as the, the dragon of old who has hated God since his fall and has hated the purposes of God and the plans of God and has sought to destroy them and sought to destroy Jesus himself, so too does he now hate us who are united to him 
And like Israel of old that had been redeemed out of Egypt, passed through the waters and then journeyed through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they were nourished by God in that wilderness wandering. So too we, having been redeemed not from bondage in Egypt by the blood of a Passover lamb, but we have been redeemed from sin, Satan, death, and hell by the blood of the greater Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And we have found ourselves now in the wilderness journeying to the to the greater promised land, the new heavens and new earth. The point is that just as the dragon hated Jesus and sought to destroy him, he hates us as well and seeks to destroy us, but God nourishes us today. We'll see that again. Now, this second one, verse 7. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, and the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcome him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. When did this war take place? What was the decisive blow that led to Satan being cast down? Some think that this is a a reference to Before the creation of the world, when Satan, Lucifer, rebelled against God and became the great enemy of God and his purposes and his people and led with him a host of angels in rebellion as well, thus becoming demons. Could be that. Some think that this is a future event that's going to take place during a future tribulation period when Satan will be thrown down to have a greater influence of evil upon the earth just before the return of Christ. Many, though, believe, and I think I'm with them, that what is being communicated here is the defeat of Satan at the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John recorded and wrote the book of Revelation. He obviously wrote 
the Gospel of John as well. And he records Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. At least in that context of John 12, Jesus was speaking of the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. And the event that seems to be tied to it is him being lifted up from the earth. Probably a reference to his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. We're going to go with that. That that was the decisive victory of Christ over Satan. And that he was, in Jesus' words, cast out. In the words here, he was thrown down to the earth. His angels thrown down with him. And this taking place here in verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. It certainly sounds like and could be referenced to when Christ comes and establishes the kingdom in its fullness. The way I'm going, though, it could be the inauguration of his kingdom in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand. Now, the thing I want us to bear down on here is that this defeat of Satan is a defeat, it seems, of his accusatory ministry, if you will. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Tom Schreiner says this, Previously, Satan could legitimately accuse believers in God's presence because of their sin. But now that sins are cleansed and forgiven through the cross, he has no grounds for accusation. He has no standing or place in the presence of God. Revelation reflects here the teaching of Romans 8.1. Remember, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The point of the text is that Satan has no warrant or basis to accuse believers now that the Christ has come. God pays no heed to Satan's accusations since sin's penalty has been paid by the blood of the Lamb. Amen. That's true whether that's what's happening here or not. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, because there's plenty of it, It falls on deaf ears in heaven. Why? Because Mitch is good? No. Because Christ is good. 
and Christ has lived for me, and Christ has died for me, and Christ has been raised for me, and Christ is ascended for me and intercedes for me right now. And thus, all of my sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. And no accusation will stand. That applies in verse 11 to those who overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. They did not live their, love their life even when faced with death. Those are Christians who trust in Jesus who shed his blood for them. And because of the word of their testimony, it, it could be and is probably both, because the, the word of their testimony is the good news of the gospel that they believe. And it's also that word that they proclaim. And they love him so much that they're even willing to die. For this rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. I think that that's referencing that Satan is dead man walking. The decisive blow to him was laid at the, at the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven, but he's been given a short time. And between that first and second coming of Jesus, he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, Paul said. And John said that he is the ruler of this world. The raging devil has been thrust to earth. He has no standing in heaven, but he still plays a role on earth before the kingdom comes in its fullness. New Testament scholar Jim Hamilton was a friend of mine at Dallas Theological Seminary. He went on to Southern Seminary and got his doctorate, and he's been teaching there for many, many years. Providentially, he's the one who passed on my resume to the elders of Redeemer Community Church way back in May of 2008. Writing on this text about Satan, he is massive, he is deceptive, he is frightening, and he's mad. He knows his time is short, he knows his, cost, his cause is lost. So he comes against you with desperation and recklessness of one who has no hope of redemption, no reason to show mercy, and no desire to make terms. Imagine the ferocity of one who knows that death and damnation are certain. He hates God, he hates goodness, and he hates us. Our only hope is to heed the words of this book and trust in Christ for deliverance. Friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then the accusations of Satan against you will stand. Every one of us are sinners, and our sin deserves eternal 
wrath. What we need is someone to deliver us such that the accusations will no longer stand. And that comes through Jesus Christ. One more. Verse 13. I've summarized it like this. God sustains, nourishes, and protects his people from the enraged hate of the enemy. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Same story. In their book, God is a Warrior, Longham and Reed write this about the career of Jesus Christ. The contours of the story are of one sent from heaven to subject the cosmos to its creator and Lord, born of a woman and taking human form, he engaged the enemy, was victorious in an epic battle, and was exalted to God's right hand where he now reigns as cosmic Lord, building his new temple and receiving praise and obeisance. He will come again at the end of the age and conclude his defeat of the enemy who will have waged a final revolt. In the end, death, the final enemy, will stand defeated along with every other hostile power, and Christ will hand over the kingdom to God. But in the meantime, the people of the Messiah stand between two episodes, climax and resolution, in the eschatological warfare, enjoying the benefits and advantage of Christ's defeat of the enemy at the cross, Yet, as they await their Lord to descend from heaven on the final day, they are still beset by a hostile foe. We see his hostility. He's enraged. In verse 13, he persecuted. In verse 15, he, he poured water out like a river out of his mouth. He's trying to engulf the people of God to destroy them. But our great God, verse 14, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. If you remember, whenever God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt by the blood of the lamb and led them through the waters of the Red Sea and brought them into the wilderness to him at Mount Sinai, Reflecting upon that, God said to Israel, 
you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. I brought you out, and I have led you here. And just as they, so we. As we have been redeemed and brought out of bondage and slavery, and as we are making our way through this wilderness onto the promised land, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. And she was nourished. And as he seeks to flood us out, the earth helped the woman. God comes alongside to protect us, provide for us, help us in this fight of faith, in this time, until the end. One song we sing, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he, Christ, will hold me fast. Remember Paul, at the end of his life, standing in prison, he said, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Paul said, in his tribulations, the Lord was right there with him, rescuing him. But he goes on to say, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul understood that life would be difficult. But the Lord would be with him every step of the way, and even in death. Jesus would be with him and take him safely to his heavenly kingdom. We're about to sing another song, but here's the one that hit me on Thursday. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. What's the context of this song? Here it is. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Could have been reading Revelation 12. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, 
we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth, no, no thanks to the earthly powers. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Luther believed that Satan, our ancient foe, was still up to his old bag of tricks. And that he had a demonic realm. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. They hate Christ. They hate us. And they want to destroy us and discourage us and deceive us and distract us and the like. And our hope is in Christ the one who came and lived and died and rose, exalted to God's right hand now, who nourishes us, protects us, provides for us all the way until we reach home. Let's pray and let's sing. Father, from beginning to end, you, you give us a bit about Satan and the demonic realm, but on the whole, it's just a little bit. You major on yourself and your son and your spirit and all that has been accomplished for your people. And so, we want to look to you cling to you, persevere in the gospel of Christ. We are so grateful for him who died and rose on our behalf and the accusations no longer stand. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, some more than others, but apparently all of us to some extent. Satan wants to get us discouraged, deceived, distract, disqualify. We are so grateful that you are with us every step of the way and that you will hold us fast. In Jesus' name, amen.